0: Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, this November 8th, San Francisco residents will vote whether to keep a mile and a half stretch of Golden Gate Park car-free. Prop J organizer Zach Lipton talks with Stacy Randecker
1: this is
2: Stacy here in San Francisco talking with Zach Lipton who is one of our local transportation advocates how are you
1: pretty good thanks for having me
3: all of our friends out in Bike Land are wondering what the heck is this J thing with their SF Bike Friends
1: we have a stretch of road called JFK Drive here in Golden Gate Park it's our largest park in San Francisco um there's this 1.5 mile piece of road That really has been sort of at the center of fights over cars versus people for over a century. Most recently, it was closed down to car traffic and opened up to people at the beginning of the pandemic to create increased space for social distancing and outdoor recreation. There was an extensive, very long process and fight that I was a part of as to whether to keep it permanently in that state. We won that ultimately in April when our um, board of supervisors voted to to maintain that road permanently as a car-free space. How is this going? I'm definitely nervously optimistic for the Prop J campaign to keep this wonderful, amazing space without cars and for people here in San Francisco. I'm nervous. We've had some polling data that kind of indicates that things are a little bit neck and neck. But we also have just this huge grassroots movement of so many people who are getting out and volunteering and talking to their neighbors, campaigning at farmers markets and events and really getting the word out all over the city which is making a huge difference. So I'm optimistic, but definitely concerned. The fate of efforts to make the city more livable in general are on the ballot here in San Francisco. That's for sure.
0: You're listening to Bike Talk. Now, a story from Los Angeles heard around the world. Mike Bonin, a progressive Los Angeles council member, was targeted in racist comments by fellow council members in a leaked recording last week. Streets for All held a virtual happy hour last week with Mike Bonin.
4: We're in a powerful moment right now. And if things unfold the way that that I think, and I hope they will, we're going to have an incredible opportunity for significant change over the next few years. This could be a real watershed moment in Los Angeles. People who have stood in the way of real progress are are being removed from office. It's a real opportunity to move forward on a lot of the things that we care about. Uh, Whether it's homelessness, whether it's housing, uh, whether it's it's government reform, whether it's streets for all, there's a number of things that we can move forward on. But it's only going to get real if we keep the energy going at the grassroots.
2: We'd like to hear from you. What do you think is unique about Venice that's led to more success? And what do you hope Venice Boulevard ultimately looks like in the future?
4: What I would like to see for Venice Boulevard in the future is uh, protected bike lanes, Uh, all the way to the ocean and bus only lanes as far as it makes sense. I would like that for a hell of a lot of major corridors. For Venice Boulevard, while that is a major cut-through street for a lot of people, it's a main street. It's a neighborhood street for a lot of people. The message and the vision of making it a small town main street for people in Mar Vista was one that that resonated with people. Right now, it's about a bike lane all the way to the beach. I think that actually has an ability to capture the imagination of even more people and get them on board with it.
5: All right, Council Member, we have a uh, wonky question for you about the Metro Board, <clears throat> which you've served on for nine years now, and I'm sure you've seen a lot during that time. And over that time, the evidence has continued to mount that you know, freeway widening basically does nothing to mitigate traffic. and only creates more catastrophic uh, consequences for traffic, for livability, for housing, for our planet. Um, so it seems as though the Metro Board um, often defers to the Council of Governments, the COGS on freeway widening or in Metro speak capacity improvements. So in your Metro District, we spent a billion dollars to widen the 405 and to add a lane in each direction, only for that traffic to get worse and only nine months later. Um, than before the project started. So if Metro were to build all 363 planned lane miles of highways in the next 30 years, it won't just negate all the greenhouse gas emission savings from rail and bus projects, it will make it a lot worse. So in other words, we're spending all all this money, tens of billions to make climate change and traffic worse. What does it take for this to change? How are those private political discussions between the COGS and Metro happening? And how do we change the perception of those smaller city heads and managers that often t- think in terms of level of service, which is, you know, basically vehicle miles traveled or whatnot.
4: I remember giving an interview early in my time on Metro to a radio station, and I, I talked about, you know, stupid freeway widenings are and how they're a waste of money. And you're constantly trying to figure out how much you can push on a bunch of different things without pissing people off so much that that you lose sight of the biggest thing you're fighting for. A couple of the biggest things I'm fighting for are fareless transit, uh, for preserving the, the bus system and for reimagining public safety at LA Metro. Every time I'm fighting really hard on that, I'm pissing off some other members who don't believe in some of those things. And then that makes it harder to pursue the conversation about the freeway expansions, the highway funds and stuff like that. Um, I think a key thing just to think forward is gonna be who the new mayor is and who uh, the new mayor appoints. Karen Bass, God willing, comes in. Karen has a record as a progressive who doesn't piss people off. It's a talent I wish I I had. It's an opportunity for a clean slate moment uh, with the new council, new mayor.
6: Thanks, Mike. Our last question before we go to the audience. So it's on Healthy Streets LA. Um, I want to publicly thank you for being one of our six yes votes that we actually had to adopt. Instead, we heard Nuri Martinez and others wax poetic about how dangerous our streets are. We failed to implement the mobility plan, only to vote to delay yet again. And your tweet yesterday, I just want to read it for anyone that missed it. For the past two years, for nearly any piece of progressive legislation, there was usually a less ambitious alternative co-sponsored by Nuri and often Mitch. And for nearly every debate, Nuri Gill, and Kevin attacked progressive organizers doing the real work. That was your tweet. If you could wave a wand, what reforms would you propose for city council? Would it be charter reform, council expansion, a stronger mayor system? I know we saw a lot of those motions yesterday at council, but... Wanted to give you a chance to blue sky with us.
4: Well, if I had a magic wand, I'd go back in time and and make it so that Nuri had never been council president. Um, that would have been my my, my first magic wand moment. And, and what's particularly infuriating about the safe streets issue is we knew there was a difference between what Nuri wanted. And I think Nuri had legit issues that she needed addressed about equity, uh, but I didn't think they were incompatible with the ballot proposition. A, a little hard to assess if there's an opportunity to to try to do anything with that uh, before I'm gone in 55 days. My suspicion is that it can be brought back with a, a lot of gusto with uh, the new council.
6: Can we just get a revote on a lot of stuff that Neri did?
4: Nice. Uh, <laughs> I would love to see a lot of revotes on stuff. The best thing we can do to show people that progressive solutions work is get enough votes to actually put progressive solutions in place. And we shouldn't buy into the narrative that stuff that's not working now are progressive policies because progressive policies haven't been put in place. Uh, they've been roadblocked and stymied and, and undercut and, and and half measured for a long time. We're at a moment of incredible change in Los Angeles, and uh, the biggest way to make sure it happens is you. And um, so please uh, get the right candidates elected over the next three weeks, and then uh, keep on them in good ways and in bad, and find effective inside-outside strategies, and and let's get stuff done. And thank you very much for the the kind words tonight and for the the love and the friendship. I'm very grateful. Mm
0: You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now we have Michael Schneider, founder of Streets for All, to talk more about Mike Bonin and Healthy Streets Los Angeles. How are you doing, Michael? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, too. You just hosted Mike Bonin, L.A. City Council member, who is leaving. He wasn't termed out, was he?
6: He wasn't termed out, but he decided not to run for re-election. So he is leaving on December 12th.
0: And he had a lot of ups and downs.
6: Mike Bonin has been a champion of Safe Streets since he was first elected in 2013. He also joined the Metro board that year. And he's come up with a lot of good ideas and policies and projects, both at the county level with Metro and within Council District 11 in the city of Los Angeles. Um, But to your point, it, it hasn't been easy. In 2017, he blessed a road reconfiguration on Vista Del Mar, uh, he did it in response to a woman being killed the prior year, and the one of the ways they wanted to make the street safer is to reduce a vehicle traffic lane in each direction. And they had some extra space, so they did add bike lanes. And there was a massive outcry, um, frankly, by a lot of people that didn't even live in the city of Los Angeles. Eventually, it was reversed, and since then, two other people have been killed on that same stretch of road. Um, including earlier this year. So it's really tragic. And uh, one of our happy hour questions actually was, if tens of millions of dollars in legal settlements, horrific loss of life on the same stretch of road doesn't cause Los Angeles to change, what will? Mike's response basically was you guys, advocates. He said he noticed a, a very important change in the way people were talking about bike lanes and multimodal transportation and he did credit uh, Healthy Streets LA, us, and, and many other groups that have worked on this issue with changing the conversation. So I think the glass is half full. I think even though we're losing Mike, which I wish he was uh, getting reelected or running for re-election, um, I think that the tenor in Los Angeles and the momentum in Los Angeles is real.
0: They wanted to recall him because he put in very short stretches of safe street infrastructure.
6: Uh yeah think about it as a sense of entitlement in Los Angeles, but uh, people were so uh, angry that something was quote unquote, being taken away from them uh, without their permission that that definitely, uh, at least the one in 2017 was primarily driven by uh, road safety changes. I think the one last year was driven by a number of factors.
0: All right. W- would you say that there's something about, say for complete streets, or multimodal streets, that is, I would have thought it would be politically neutral that everybody would want that for like their, for their kids. But is that a progressive thing?
6: You know, Nick, when I was first running for neighborhood council in 2019, I live in a very Orthodox Jewish part of Los Angeles, and I see a lot of Orthodox kids biking to school. And I was talking to the mother of one of the kids. I knew her kid biked up and down my street to school. And I said, hey, if you vote for me, I'm going to uh, try to make the street safer for everybody, including your, your child who, who rides his bike to school. And without flinching, she looked at me stone cold and said, but is it going to make traffic worse? And that was a, a, a moment for me because I, I realized that even though I was telling a mother, a parent, that I was going to make the street safer for her child. She was even more concerned apparently by her commute time. So I don't know what, what the label is anymore. Progressive, not progressive. I, I know Republicans that love bike lanes. I know Democrats that, that love their car and hate bike infrastructure. So I don't, I don't really view it as a red, red, blue issue. Um, I, I just think, I do think one of the strongest entry points to a conversation with someone is keeping their kids safe. Um, I can tell you, I recently started biking with my four-year-old daughter to her preschool with her on her own bike. And part of me absolutely loves it. I mean, it's joyful. She's um, noticing things about our community and about our neighborhood she wouldn't see in a car. She's feeling the wind if it's windy or the sun, if it's sunny, et cetera. And all that's great and it's teaching her to be independent. But the downside is I'm also a half nervous wreck. I want to make sure that she's safe. And I, uh, you know, I, I do everything I can to make sure cars don't pass her too closely or she does not she hasn't weave into cars. She stays away from car doors, et cetera. But that's just ridiculous. I mean, we shouldn't live in a city where uh, the choice is a child has to be ensconced in an SUV driven to school or some bold parents like myself. There's not many of us. Um, are willing to deal with the risk and and try to protect the child while still giving the child the gift of biking to school. So it's got to change.
0: And speaking of it's got to change you and streets for all the organization that you founded made a ballot measure, healthy streets LA that went before the city council. And was it, what was the vote against that?
6: Well, the vote was unanimous to send it to the ballot but LA City Council is, is complicated. No one wants to be on the losing side, so that's why you don't see very many eight, seven votes or, or things like that. Um, we got six yes votes to behind the scenes. We, we got six commitments to vote yes to adopt it, but we couldn't get to eight. And when we couldn't get to eight, the six votes collapsed and went to the other side to just send it to the ballot.
0: And then we found out that the council president, one of the council members that we call Roadkill Gill, who's opposed biking infrastructure forever, uh, were part of this unbelievable discussion caught on tape where they say racist things about Mike Bonin's kid. And now uh, they gotta go.
6: They didn't just say racist things about Mike Bonin's kid. They also managed to insult in the same conversation. It was really quite impressive. Armenians, Jewish people, uh, I think I'm forgetting uh, Black people, of course, and I think I'm forgetting some groups. But it was a very <laughs> impressively diverse, offensively uh, racist conversation.
0: And, um, and weren't they like g- trying to gerrymander or yes. take away they the were, power? Of, yeah,
6: They were trying to gerrymander the city's redistricting process to um, essentially remove power from Black council members or Black districts, what they saw as Black districts, and uh, give more power to Latino districts. Um, the whole thing was is is and was disgusting. But what I can tell you is from a healthy streets LA point of view, it's so ironic, man. Uh Nuri Martinez, I sat with Nuri maybe three weeks before the vote.
0: The president, the council yes. president, the one on the tape.
6: The council president, the one on the tape. And she basically told me that she couldn't support adopting ours. The biggest reason she had was it wasn't equitable. Um, and she started citing um different groups that uh that she said were equity groups that said told her it wasn't equitable and you know they kind of use frankly they kind of use each other's talking points but it's so ironic that she was saying that to my face and um corralling these groups to come and make public comment against adoption which did happen on the day at council and, you know, behind the scenes is is being racist and, and saying horrible things about anyone, including Latinos. I mean, she was she was insulting people from Oaxaca saying they were ugly and short. It's just it's just so incredible. So yeah. do I wish we could have a revote with a new council president that isn't racist, that doesn't do things in the name of equity while, while being racist behind the scenes? Of course I do. But unfortunately, it's not the way the charter works. So. Uh, there is no redo at city council, and it will be on the March 2024 ballot. And in about a year, we'll be gearing up to raise money and and do a campaign to make sure it passes.
0: Oh, okay. Because I thought that Mike Bonin did mention the possibility of a recount, but maybe he was just saying, wouldn't that be nice?
6: I think he was saying, wouldn't it be nice? There's There's no legal mechanism that I know of to force another city council vote.
0: So it'll be on the ballot, you said, in March?
6: March of twenty twenty four. That's the California so change there. Twenty twenty four. Yes.
0: Uh, uh, and and Healthy Streets LA once again. Uh, what is where every time a street's repaved, they have to put in uh, the what's in the what's already in the the bike plan for the city.
6: That's right. The, LA the mobility has, plan. LA has a mobility plan twenty thirty five full of thousands of miles of bike lanes, bus lanes, and other improvements. They've done 3% in seven years. It's basically been ignored and collected dust. So once Healthy Streets LA passes, the city will not legally be allowed to repave a corridor that has mobility plan treatment without implementing the mobility plan itself. It should result in thousands of miles of bike lanes and hundreds of miles of bus lanes across Los Angeles relatively quickly.
0: It's just amazing that some of the people on this tape were some of the big obstructors of the. Yeah, you know, team. I will
6: say um, Kevin De Leon was a supporter of it, um, and it's it's just it's tragic. I I spent time with him before the vote, after the vote. I I never heard anything like that was on the tape, but it's just so sad to me that um, you know even it, it doesn't matter if you support bike lanes or not. If you're if you if you make or participate in a racist conversation, you shouldn't be in office um and uh Gil Cedillo, uh was never there wasn't a chance in hell he was going to support this like you said roadkill kill Gil um thankfully he's out regardless of what happens and Euniceis should be much better for council district 1
0: how did this happen that Euniceis is coming in
6: you know she ran a great campaign uh some of the same people that were behind Nithia uh were working with her in her campaign
0: Nithia Raman and- CD CD4
6: Correct. Yes. And um, to put it in perspective, Nithia's win in 2020 was the first time an incumbent had lost, I believe, in 17 years in Los Angeles. Now, in less than two years, it's only a year and a half from Nithia's win, Gil gets defeated by Eunice Hernandez. So, honestly, the most meaningful thing that LA has ever done uh, started at the state level, where the state, through the Voting Rights Act, uh, basically mandated all the cities align their elections with state and federal elections. And so the turnout is not only much higher, but much more progressive. Mm-hmm. And honestly, these incumbents that used to win, uh, depending on the district, you know, I, th- I think of a guy like Paul Koretz. Uh, Paul Koretz probably had a thousand names in his Rolodex. And he's like, as long as I get these thousand people on board, I'll win election or re-election. That doesn't work anymore. Um, the turnout is much more diverse, much younger, much more progressive. And I don't think, I think there's going to be a wholesale cleaning over the next few years of, of city council because younger people, more progressive people are coming up and they're winning. It's exciting.
0: I know you said that it doesn't matter what your politics are when it comes to supporting safe streets or bike lanes, but I still kind of think that young progressive people are going to be friendlier to non-car active transportation.
6: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think just by the virtue of being young, I think people might be more open-minded and, and open to different forms of transportation. Uh, progressive certainly helps. You know, Hugo Soto Martinez, who's running against Mitchell Farrell in Council District 13 right now, and I think has a very good chance of winning. And if that happens, that would be the third incumbent that's lost in 19 years. Hmm. Um, but but again, all of the those losses would have been in the last year and a half or two years. Really impressive. Um, he, it's not a prop. He has a bicycle hanging on his wall um, <laughs> when he does Zooms. And he, he did a TikTok the other day of him biking around CD13 and looking at the conditions. Um, he's the real deal. Um, Nithya actually rides a bike, and, and when she opened the Riverside Drive bike lane, she had her son with her who was riding his own bike. Um, it, it's just... It, I, I almost think it's, it sounds so simple, but it is this simple. If we elect people that actually have lived experiences on our streets and have been vulnerable road users, uh, pedestrians, of course, we're all pedestrians at some point, but actually ridden a bike, you're going to have this natural built-in empathy that you really can't easily create unless somebody is so philosophical and they see the connection between bikes and transportation and climate change, and therefore they, they're behind it. Uh, the most powerful politician will be an advocate in office because they actually have that lived experience.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. And I guess we have to wait until 2024 for Healthy Streets LA. I can't believe it, but...
6: We do have to wait till 2024, but it's March of 2024. We're already in October of 2022. So it's only a year and a half. I know that may sound like a long time right now, but uh, the campaign will start in just about a year and uh, it'll be here before you know it
0: all right streets for all michael schneider and who's your next happy hour guest
6: our next happy hour guest is going to be Aaron ajarian who is the new uh chair of metro um and that will be 5 p.m on wednesday november 9th
0: we'll look out for it
6: thanks for all you do glad to be on bike talk
0: You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now we go to the Oceanside suburban community of Winthrop in greater Boston, Massachusetts, where Julia Wallers is being targeted for her bike lane advocacy. Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition Executive Director Galen Mook has the interview.
7: Julia, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for calling in on your walk on Revere Beach. How's life in uh, the Bike Winthrop
2: world? Life in Bike Winthrop is actually exciting. We're getting ready for our fifth annual Halloween bike parade and fun ride. Gets bigger every year. It's a great just community event, bringing together people from all around the community, especially families. And um, we're super excited for that uh, this coming Saturday. And also the Greenway extension is is, uh, underway. So feeling hopeful on all of those things, thanks to our ongoing partnership with Fast Bike.
7: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So for folks just tuning in, uh, we have Julia Prang-Wallers here. Um, She's part of Bike Winthrop and also part of kind of the ITDP Institute for Transportation Development Policy, like bigger picture stuff too. Yeah, I um, also on the board of Livable like,
2: Streets, uh, on the board chair of Livable Streets Alliance. Of course,
7: yes, all yeah. the hats that you wear. So um, many hats? Um, hats. Well, good, but um, for those of you who might be dialing in across the country and don't know anything about Winthrop, um, Julia, can you talk a little bit about kind of like geography of your tiny little neck of a peninsula that you're-, uh, yeah. you're-
2: yeah, it's really cool. It's, it's really unique. We are literally over the Right over the line from East Boston, right past Boston uh, Logan Airport, a tiny peninsula that sticks out into the ocean and is surrounded by water on just about all sides. But a tiny little piece, there's a bridge from East Boston into Winthrop, and then a little spit of sandy land that connects us to Revere. What are we doing
7: for bikeability then? Because usually yeah. we think of like you know commuters or I
2: know. It's,
7: what's what's the angle?
2: It's funny because I moved here six years ago with my husband who was born and raised in Winthrop and like, you know, they were in the grocery store. So we have family here, but we moved from Somerville where I had been living for a long time and, you know, biking anywhere and everywhere. And in Somerville, there's a million people biking and there's tons of great bike infrastructure. And I came to Winthrop and there's zero bike infrastructure, but I actually felt safer biking around Winthrop for the, for the sole reason of there just weren't that many cars. Now, that, that depends on the time of day, and it depends on the street. There's a couple of streets, like Revere Street, which is the only street that actually goes right through Winthrop. Um, so I would avoid those streets. But no street has more than one lane in each direction. Most of the streets, if you know where to ride, have almost nobody driving on them, especially in the middle of the day. Um, we have a very high senior population, like average age is in the high 50s. Um, so there's a lot of people that don't leave at all. And and of course they're pedestrians mostly, people who don't drive. But yeah, I, I felt safer just because I would often be the only one on the street. But there is no bike culture. The commute, so to speak, the 713 and 712 bus function mostly as a, as a circulator shuttle around town. They follow the same route as the trains used to. Depending where you live in Winthrop, like where I live, which is really close to the beginning, right when you cross the bridge on Belleau Marsh, it's a straight shot biking. It's really uncomfortable. The street's very wide. It's high speed. Then you cross over the Boston line. And literally, the second you cross the line, there's a bike line.
7: <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a lovely bike path. In the Boston area, it goes to the beach. It goes through the neighborhoods. It kind of parallels a transit line. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah.
2: It, there's a choke point where it's just very narrow, old New England streets, know, parking on either side. There's a bike lane on one side. It's very uncomfortable. I usually take a side street, but then you pop out onto the main street, uh, Saratoga, and there's actually a buffered bike lane on either yeah. side, even across the bridge. And then it says, welcome to Winthrop, and it's gone, and it's just completely just a cluster of cars trying to turn, and the right turn is like a slip lane, and you risk your life if you're a pedestrian, and you're like, oh my God, what happened? I thought I was entering this cute little seaside town, but unless I'm in a car, I feel totally unwelcome. Until you get into the, the neighborhood streets and biking around. Those areas feel much safer. So
7: well, what are we what are we doing in Winthrop? How can we, it's a connectivity.
2: I think what's starting to happen is what is the same trends that we've seen in other communities that are just a good 10 to 15 or so years ahead of Winthrop in terms of streets and approach to transportation. And that's that there's a really strong undercurrent of resistance and bike lash, as they call it, because oh. even something as simple. I mean, most of our streets, honestly, are not wide enough for a bike lane. And even like Winthrop, we've made recommendations. Most of our recommendations are for traffic calming at intersections and to, you know, slow the speed of traffic. Because even some like our, one of our busiest streets, Pleasant, there's no parking on either side. And it's literally only wide enough really for cars to two cars to pass each other and you know there's sharrows so we did you know they put in sharrows at one point which was like okay but even that sparked a lot of oh my gosh what are these shareos the bikers are coming the bikers are coming <laughs> it's kind of this sense of be, feeling attacked or though they see outsiders coming because people associate bike lanes and bike infrastructure with people who aren't from winthrop and that is for whatever reason threatening to some people who don't want people who aren't from with their peer or associate them as outsiders who are going to change the culture in a way that they don't want and that's fine we don't all want the same things but they're kind of lumping in this this stereotype of who a cyclist is and who a bike lane or a bike parking or a Cheryl, who it's for and pegging that as not someone we want here Mm. we don't want that here that's not us that's not who we are and and it becomes a culture war
7: yeah do you think that's the majority of Winthrop or is it just a a very few vocal opponents who are kind of making that opinion yes (laughs)
2: like you said I do not think it's a majority of Winthrop um, at all there are a lot of people I mean I, I think there's a lot but you know when I lived in Somerville we'd be at hearings a decade or more ago, you know, about Somerville Ave or McGrath Highway. And, and it was the same argument. It was the same. We don't want that here. Ride your bike somewhere else. This is not there's going to cause too much traffic. It's not safe. No one's going to yeah. do that. No one's going to do that. Only a few. You know, I get sometimes nasty messages like you think you're so privileged riding your bike. Well, I have to get to work and I have to feed my kids and I don't have time to deal with this bike nonsense. Yeah. Not recognizing that Ultimately, who do who, biking is the only, you know, next to walking, it's free. And to make it safe is, is literally an equity improvement. You know, as you know, making biking safer and more accessible can lower people's expenses and makes the town more affordable to live in. It makes it more enjoyable. You clean the air, you know. I'll even have some of the like climate related people pushing back about bike lanes thinking, Oh, but oh, well, we sure. need, yeah. but the parking or the elderly need to park there. You know, parking is always, always the you know hot button issue. And really this has not come up in Winthrop until just recently, because we have never had a bike lane proposal. Um, I've certainly been cognizant of the firestorm that bike lanes Can spark and not didn't want to do that to my community knowing how sensitive that they that people are and wanting to just build up a positive bike culture so that's what we did when we formed bike winthrop back in 2017 we just did bike rides you know our first event was the halloween ride and we just a few of us got together and made a flyer and a facebook event and said come on out and reached out to the police who were totally supportive they sent out police in on bikes and we just did a costume ride around town followed by coffee and muffins in the park and it was super fun you know we had 50 60 people come out and we thought hey this is great let's let's build a culture around biking that's family friendly that's fun that people feel good about that doesn't feel like an assault on the culture of Winthrop um which somehow has, is tied to driving, which is really ironic because on the flip side, people don't want development and they don't want people, they don't want cars, they don't want traffic, but we'll turn around to the same argument and oppose bikes and oppose more pedestrian-friendly infrastructure. And it is mind-boggling. And all I can say is it just comes down to culture work.
7: Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of funny. So for those of you who might not know, Winthrop had bike share
2: for a bit, we did well we had the dockless bikes
7: yeah the the dockless ones and Mm then i I don't remember if they were electric or not but when i whenever i was Mm -hmm. in Winthrop, the primary if not the only people i saw riding those bikes were kids yep yep it's like 14 15 year olds after school riding the bikes around and it's like who who is biking for well the local team right
2: Right. So people who can't drive (laughs) <laughs> and, and to Winthrop's credit, you do see teens and youth walking all around. And that's a great thing. You know, teenage girls like a great indicator species, you see them walking in groups. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's an indicator of a safe community. And if that was my teenage girl, like I want her to be safe. Or even, you know, I have an eight-year-old and she wants to walk home now from like the library and from school and the town's so small, but what if she wanted to bike? I'm fine with her walking. I'm not fine with her biking.
7: (laughs) I love it. How can we elevate that message then? And, and I don't know if you need the help, but I'm just curious as to what your strategy might be to get over the the bike lash. Because honestly, it's like, if these people were to just open their eyes, the opponents would just open their eyes and look around. It's like, Oh Yeah. This is literally for our kids. It's for
2: us. We need to brand it and so that people see themselves yep. in, in bike culture and see, you know, this this started because we have a, um, a major federal project through the state that's redesigning our major thoroughfare, really our only like major road that goes through the town. Six million dollars, major overhaul, so needed, news, you know, signals, sidewalks, trees, pipes, sewers, all of that. But because it's using complete streets funding through the state, it has to have bike accommodations unless you can prove a hardship. But of course, you know, most people didn't see it. Oh, I have a baby waking up until they, you know, saw this stripe. What is is that a bike lane? Like, why do we have bike lanes here? And kind of a sense of um, urgency, like it's happening. It's coming. You know, we have Suffolk Downs, this major redevelopment. Thousands of new residents will be living right across the marsh. And there's a sense of um, infringement and like the town is at risk and biking is lumped in with that so they see this bike lane i thought oh no it's here it must be because of people like xyz fill in the name that's usually mine because people know i came here from california i'm from california originally you know i came from somerville i started bike Winthrop, so it must be her that one person and People mm. like her, and if we get the bike link, we're going to get more people, like Julia Waller's, and do we want that? No! Uh, resist!
0: <laughs>
7: <laughs>
2: and this is a, this is a very vocal minority, and there's one particular individual that, that has been after me in the set for years on so many issues, but bikes really trigger him, and he took to social media, you know, asking people to follow me and starting this whole thread and using my, a picture of my baby, who you hear oh, No, right?
7: <laughs> that is... Oh, that's awful
2: yeah and that really crossed the line uh for me and thought my god you're that upset that you're gonna involve someone's infant son
7: because <laughs> oh, uh, he yeah, was wearing he a onesie
2: that, a onesie that said streets are for babies you know which was a gift from livable streets when I had him and you know yeah. streets are for people streets are for everyone why not babies but anyway yeah if we just need we need we need support and resources to pivot the conversation around around who is biking for who are streets for so that you know our decision makers don't fall victim to these false arguments that it's going to make the street unsafe you know there's going to be more accidents that's the biggest thing or you know narrowing the road is more unsafe or more people are going to bike and they're they're all going to get hit by cars you know we just have to kind of plow through that
4: and connect to arguments like
2: cleaner air kids walking to school and you know your kid and you're you and you don't have to wear spandex it's just average people getting from point a to point b yeah
7: yeah i hear you so but let's, let's keep in touch Julia. i'm curious yeah. as to what what's going to happen next and you know for your little guy what, what are we going to do for the next generation so i think this is something right up on
2: yeah, I get an experience probably lots of advocates have had around the country. I'm just kind of a big fish in a small pond in yep. Winthrop.
7: <laughs> yeah, so. not uncommon. So all of you listeners out there, if you have any support for Julia you want to send her away, just get in touch with us at Bike Talk. And we would love to elevate your concerns and, and send them over to Julia out in Winthrop so that we can, uh, it's small town, it's big city, it's everybody same the same are yeah. fighting out here.
2: Yes. Yes. We can learn from each other and help each other out.
7: (laughs) All right. I'll let you go, Julia. Congrats on the baby. uh, (laughs) Thanks,
2: uh, Jalen. All right. Talk soon.
7: All right. That there was Julia Wallers from Livable Streets Alliance, the Institute for Transportation Development Policy, and more directly, Bike Winthrop, talking about some of the challenges she's facing, which is the same challenges we're facing all across the country here. And how do we get bike lanes and bike infrastructure in places that typically have not had them? How do we get folks who are afraid of change to accept change? And how do we get away from these personal attacks of, oh, you're not one of us, even though you might live in my community, might have family in my community and have a business in my community, where do we get away from that otherization? I don't know if we ever got to any solutions with Julia before we had to go, So if you've got any tips for her, please do share with us on Bike Talk. And uh, yeah, we'll be checking in with Julia and what else is going on in Winthrop and around the country here.
0: This is Bike Talk. Finally, we have Joshua Popple, executive director of the Village Bicycle Project, a nonprofit with the mission of getting used bikes to low-income farmers, students, and healthcare workers in West Africa. Taylor Nichols has the interview.
3: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols, and I'm here today with a special guest from the Village Bicycle Project, Joshua Popple. Joshua, tell us what the Village Bicycle Project is.
8: The Village Bicycle Project is a nonprofit that's been around since 1999 with the mission of getting donated used bicycles into the hands of low-income rural farmers and students and healthcare workers in West Africa.
3: Wow. How did you pick West Africa of all the places in the world that need help? I'm just curious. So the organization was founded by a gentleman
8: named David Peckham. He was a former Peace Corps volunteer in Gabon, and during his time there, he sort of recognized the need and opportunity for affordable, accessible transportation. And so after Dave had finished his two-year stint with the Peace Corps, he started looking for opportunities of where he could start a program like this. And one of the things that he was looking for was one that needed to have an accessible port port. So that anything that shipped in could be readily accessed. And the other big element was finding a country that didn't have excessive taxes or regulations on getting bikes into the country. How about corruption? Has there been much of having to deal with that or not? I don't think you can avoid it in a lot of Africa. I don't think that we've dealt with anything that was really off the charts. Anytime you're shipping into some of the ports that we work with, there's always the potential for a little bit of graft, but Personally, from my perspective, I find the shipping industry in general, not that it's corrupt per se, but extremely difficult to work with in the sense that you have no recourse with them as a consumer. Right, of course. Yeah, it's take it or leave it, right? Pretty much. And at different times, we've been assessed like a $2,000 fee for examining our cargo. And this happened in the US. It wasn't actually in an African port that they were just sort of like, well, we need to do a spot check. We're going to charge you an extra $2,000 to do it. And there was nothing we could do about it. So those issues are a bigger problem than any sort of corruption that we deal with in Africa.
3: Right. Can you explain what it is exactly that you do? And it's clear when you peruse your website, but just for the listeners... Can you explain how you get the bikes, how you ship them, and then how you get them in the hands of the people that really need them? And then, of course, we'll ask about how it changes their lives. But I'm just curious in the mechanics of what it is exactly that you're doing.
8: So we work with a handful of different organizations around the U.S. and the U.K., most of whom are also nonprofits with the goal of collecting donated used bicycles. We've worked with Bikes Not Bombs out of Boston, Bikes for the World out of D.C., Working Bikes Co-op in Chicago, and then there's a group called Recycle out of the U.K. And so all of these organizations and Village Bicycle Project as well We will collect donated bikes. And once we have enough, which is typically 450 to 500 bikes, we will load up a 40-foot shipping container, pack all the bikes in there, including any sort of spare parts, tires, wheels, tools, anything else that we can use to kind of support the bicycling industry in-country, and then we ship those containers out. And we have a team in Ghana and a team in Sierra Leone. And when the containers arrive in country, all of the bikes are pretty much offloaded at the port. We've had somewhat of a self-financing method that we've used in the past. And that if we're sending a shipment of 500 bikes, we'll typically sell about two thirds of those bikes on the market there. And then the funds that are generated from those bike sales will go to Our program work with the remaining 100, 150 bikes that we have. And those bikes are taken to communities which have gone through sort of an application and vetting process. Again, typically rural communities, usually not the bigger towns like Accra or Freetown. We're kind of going out into the more rural areas. And we will work with a community to provide subsidized bicycles. And the citizens that come out and participate in our programs, you have to pay a small price for the bike. It's usually about a quarter of the going market rate. What's the market rate for a used bike in Africa? It depends. It's typically anywhere between $25 to $50, depending on the quality of the bike. Our bikes are usually being sold for maybe $5 to $10. Now, are you dealing be... with mainly mountain bikes then or cruisers? Our bread and butter bike is like an old, rigid 26-inch mountain bike. Those work great because a lot of the areas that we work in, a lot of the communities that we work in, paved roads are nowhere to be found. And if you get stuck there in the raining season, it can be wet, it can be muddy. The roads can be really rutted. So old mountain bikes really work
0: best.
3: Let me ask you, I do a lot of volunteer work in Los Angeles, where I live, for a company that collects bikes from Metro and from the city that have been left. Mm -hmm. We then fix them up and give them out to people in need in the community and oftentimes those bikes are in really bad shape. And do you guys fix up the bikes or how do you get them in riding condition? Do you do that before you ship them or when they're already in country? Or
8: We have to wait until after they're in country. And part of that is, is that the process of packing and shipping the bikes also takes a bit of a toll on the bikes. So even if they were perfectly tuned and well-conditioned when they went into the container, it's not a guarantee that they're going to come out of that container the same way. So. Wow. Both of our teams in Ghana and Sierra Leone, we have usually about a half a dozen staff who are primarily mechanics, but also trainers. And so anytime the bikes come out of the shipping container, the ones that we're distributing through our programs will always be tuned up before they're given to the recipients.
3: Do bicycle companies donate cables and tires and tubes? Yeah,
8: we've had different donations over the years from a lot of different companies. I actually work with a number of Trek stores in the greater Salt Lake area, and they have been great about taking donations for us. They will have trade-in programs occasionally, especially with kids' bikes. So anything that comes in and gets donated or is sort of out of stock or the product line changes, they've been great about donating a tremendous amount of stuff. So Trek is really- glad been to hear
3: that. that because Trek has been opening up a lot of stores around the country. They just got a new store in Los Angeles. Yep. That is taken over. So I'm glad that they're involved in that. Any other major bicycle companies involved with you? Or not? not currently. Specialized a number of years ago, shipped us a whole bunch of tubes that were kind of on the expiration lines,
8: which was great because a lot of the communities that we work in, it's not like you can just go to the bike shop and buy a new tube. That doesn't exist. They will patch a tube until it is more patched than the initial rubber. So, right. and as a sidebar, that's one of the fascinating things about being in country and seeing the work of our trainers and our mechanics what they are able to do with really limited resources to keep the bikes running. It's just magnificent to like mechanical work. It's yeah, so interesting yeah. to see.
3: So after you collect all these bikes and you ship them to West Africa and you unload them and fix them up, can you tell me a little bit about the effect that it has on the people that get those bikes?
7: Yeah.
8: It's really a game changer, and it's hard to appreciate, I think, for a lot of people in in the U.S. or in North America. But the 5 or $10 that people are spending on these bikes is a pretty significant financial investment for them. And the communities that we work with are the types of communities where people are subsisting on $1 to $2 a day, typically. So depending on the recipient, we've really tried to shift a lot of our focus to students over the last few years. Obviously, getting kids transportation opportunities to get to education and access their education has been huge. And aside from the obvious benefits of that, one of the reasons why we focused on students is it's a little bit easier for us to track metrics in terms of we can look at somebody's attendance level before they receive the bike and after they receive the bike. Oh, wow. there grade point average. So there's a lot of metrics that are very easy for us to track. And we've seen repeatedly that students that have access to a bike, and you got to remember a lot of these students are walking upwards of five to seven miles each way. So their walking time to school could be an hour and a half. Yeah. And
3: where five miles
8: on a bike is 10 minutes. Exactly. So it's a huge time savings in terms of getting there on time, getting them home after school gives them more time to do any homework they have. And then with all that extra time, they're still able to contribute to their family in terms of any chores or working on the farm or anything else. So yeah, that's been huge. So students are a primary recipient for us, especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, we've been working with a lot of healthcare workers. And it's the same benefit if you have a healthcare worker that's traveling by foot, The ground that they can cover and the number of patients that they can see in a given day is significantly less than if they have a bicycle and they can cover essentially five times as much ground. So
3: yeah, a bicycle is a work multiplier. A human being can carry 10, 15 pounds on their back, but a bicycle can carry 60 pounds or more on their rear wheel. So that's amazing. And also along with students, it seems to be like you work a lot with women and girls
8: we try to target at least 50% women. And that can be challenging in some communities. And this was probably true more so before Village Bike Project really started working in a lot of these communities, there was a lot of taboos against women riding bikes. And it's not uncommon for us to go into a community now and still have this taboo that literally riding a bike can rob a young woman of her virginity and stuff like that. So initially, we had to overcome a lot of that. And I think that That's less of an issue than we deal with now after 20 years of work that we've been doing. But as a sidebar, our team in Sierra Leone has actually developed a nascent cycling racing team. Oh, wow. And it's a split between men and women. And the fact that there are women racers in Sierra Leone that are now potentially competing internationally, it's another one of those things that, although it may not be directly part of the bike project mission it has completely changed the cultural acceptance of bikes in the local area. I bet. And do they ride under the banner of VBP or what? It's called the Loonsar Cycling Team. Loonsar is the town where our team is based out of, which is about an hour and a half outside of Freetown, the capital city. But it's a tremendous cycling community. And having watched that grow over the years that I've been involved with Village Bike Project, it's been amazing to see.
3: Yeah. There are some great stories that you talk about on your website. Is there one story that stands out for you of a person who's gotten a bike who has changed their life? That's a good question, Taylor. It's hard for me to pinpoint one because almost every
8: story we tell is really kind of a game changer. Right. The ones that I can think of just because of the conversation that we were having about the Loonstar cycling team is one young woman who had never been out of her community before, had essentially never traveled outside a five or 10 mile radius from where she was born and raised. And now through a partnership with a couple of different organizations now has not only the opportunity to compete around the country, but maybe in the process of getting a visa to go to Germany and compete there. It's just fantastic to see this. It's
3: amazing how sport can just open up the world to people who it may not have been open to before. I'm curious, what was the decision to charge for the bikes as opposed to donate them for free? That's a great question. So I think if you talk to a lot of people in international development, this is
8: a topic that comes up pretty regularly. There have been a number of studies done that show essentially if you're giving things out for free, if you're just donating them and handing them out. The individual investment on the recipient to maintain that, whatever it is, whether it's clothing or a bike or anything else, tends to diminish if they don't have personal buy-in. And so we could give the bikes out. And then I think the expectation is, all right, well, if this breaks, you should give me another one. Whereas if the person has individual investment in it, they're going to work harder to maintain the bike and keep it running. Right. And one of the things that we do as part of our program and our distribution is any time we do a program in a community and we're doing bike distribution, we make sure that those new recipients have about three hours of basic mechanical training, the majority of which is how to fix a flat, how to keep your bike running, and also how to diagnose it if something's wrong. This is something that you need to take to the local repairer, the local mechanic, and we always invite anybody with mechanical aptitude in the community to join us at at our trainings, at our programs, so that they can meet the new bike recipients, the new bike recipients know who to go to if they have a problem, and... As part of that participation, we're also giving the local repairer access to specialized bike tools, which they would otherwise not have access to.
3: It's all about the tools. Really, bicycle maintenance is, if you don't have the right tools, forget about it. Exactly.
8: So having that buy-in by the individual, I think, is really key in terms of just maintaining that individual investment and keeping the bike running and not just expecting another
3: handout. And you're training mechanics also.
8: Yeah, exactly. Once we've sort of saturated a regional area or a specific community, we try to go back in and work with a handful of the new mechanics or the new trainers to do an advanced level training so that they're even better prepared to support the could be a couple hundred bikes in a community, depending on the size of the community. So it's a multi-step process for us, but in addition to the individuals receiving bikes, we're really trying to grow in the industry around it and create jobs for people as well that want to be working with bikes and maintaining them.
3: Oh, that's great. I have a couple of daughters and they bike a little bit because I force them to bike. But it's amazing how often I'll call them and say, hey, are you riding your bike? And they're like, I can't. There's no air in the tires or something like that. So I think yeah. that's hugely important to get people to be able to diagnose the problem, yeah. fix it if it's simple. And then know where to take it to get some help if they need it. Yeah. And making sure that there's something simple
8: as a pump in the community, right? That's kind of basic. Everybody needs to have access to a pump. Otherwise, what are you going to do?
3: So yeah. Yeah. For our listeners, how can people listening, we're on both coasts, Massachusetts and Los Angeles, as well as just online. So we have listeners all over. How can people listening get involved and help? The best thing to do is just to take a look at our website,
8: villagebicycleproject.org. That has links to... A lot of different things, a lot of different storylines that we do. There is a portal there if anybody wants to donate. Certainly the money that goes into this is something that is kind of a key factor, particularly over the last couple of years with shipping rates and everything in the shipping industry and being chaotic. It gets harder and harder every year for us to deliver the bikes that we do. But right. the website is really the best place. If you want more information, if you want to make a donation, or if you have questions and just want to reach out and communicate with us, that's really the place to go.
3: You're a 501c3. So if someone donates money to you it's a tax write-off for them correct yep and how about a tax write-off for a boat? we can do
8: that too the tricky thing depending on where you are is usually a lot of times when people reach out to us in terms of making a donation we need to find a local partner which we have all over the country but occasionally we'll get people that'll hear about us and be like hey i've got a bike i'm actually going to ship it out to you with a whole bunch of spare parts people want to do that that's fantastic too it's one of the best ways for us to get stuff we will take pretty much anything old cycling clothes, any old parts, old parts, old tools are fantastic. It's actually one of the best things that people can donate because we always need stuff like that.
3: So I just want to clarify really quick. If somebody has old parts or clothes or tools or even old bikes, they would ship it to you in Seattle? Or Salt Lake in- City, but yeah, it may not be the best way. It depends. If we have a local partner, the easiest thing to
8: do is to give it to them. But occasionally we have people that are be like, I've got this box of tools. Can I ship it out to you? And I'm like, absolutely. We'd love Can those. you name some of your local partners just so I have an idea and so the listeners have an idea of who it might be? Bikes for the World is out of DC. They actually cover a pretty big metro area there. Working Bikes Co-op in Chicago we've worked with. Occasionally, we work with Mike's Bikes out of California. I think they're in Northern California. Yeah, I've heard of them. They're not in Southern
3: California where I am, but I have heard of them,
8: yeah. Yeah. I think they're pretty prominent in the Bay area. Worked with Bikes Not Bombs out of Boston in the past, although they've sort of minimized their international programs. So those are generally the key partners that we work with. But we also have folks that reach out every once in a while. We'll get somebody who's really ambitious. I love what you're doing. I want to start a program locally and they will put the time and effort into gathering the bikes and putting together a shipment. It's a tremendous labor of love to do that, but... You know, it's been successful in the past, so we're always Uh, happy to have new partners.
3: And of course, people can always donate money directly to you. Absolutely. Okay, and that's a tax write-off. Is there anything that I missed, Joshua, that you want to talk about, about Village Bicycle Project? Just the last aspect of our programming, which we sort of
8: talked on in terms of making sure women have access, is we also do a Learn to Ride program as part of our teaching And we find that in a lot of communities, the local women, especially the younger women have never had a chance to actually ride a bike. So if we're going to be going into a community and it's pretty obvious that most of the women are still very new to biking, we'll go in a week in advance and send our trainers in and do just this week long course, giving women the opportunity to ride the bikes. And what we find happens with those is that some of the women that become the early learners then become the teachers and they wind up teaching the whole community. And it's just another one of those great things to see, just like the women supporting women in this essentially new endeavor for them. Yeah,
3: well, I think it's an amazing program. And again, the website is villagebicycleproject.org. There's a lot of information and pictures and stories there. I have often thought it's a model of a program that would work for the unhoused population in a city like Los Angeles, where it would help them get to services, help them get to work, maybe even help them earn some money. And I thank you for the work that you're doing. Can you quickly give us how to reach you, how to contact you, any Instagram or? We have Facebook and Instagram accounts.
8: Again, the best place to access them is just the links on the website, just to kind of keep people streamlined in that one focus. And then there's access information there in terms of reaching out to me or having any questions. Always happy to talk to folks if anybody has any questions about our programming or wants to get more
3: involved. Yeah,
8: just start at the website.
3: Have you been to Africa? Have you been there to see the fruits of your labor?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Multiple times. It's been a couple of years just because of the pandemic, but I've been
3: there, I think four times oh, over the first few years that I was working with the organization and we'll be heading back in March. That's great. Well, Joshua Papel, thank you so much for your time and for all the work you've done with the Village Bicycle Project. And thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thanks, Taylor. Always happy to chat. Appreciate it.
0: That was Bike Talk. Check us out at Biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push
7: on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, push your feet on the pedal. Ride it all around, ride it all around Get on your bike Sit on the seat Put your feet on the pedals And ride it all around, ride it all around That's not my fight